This Sunday begins the most solemn and holy time in the church's life. Holy Week is a mini-season, and in the liturgical renewal of the church 40 years ago, all of these ancient rites were restored to their rightful place in all of the liturgical churches of the West, meaning churches where worship that use set forms of worship and so on. And I've mentioned this to you before. In seminary, I learned a maxim, Baumstark's Law. At the most solemn and holy times of the Christian year, the most ancient ceremonies and liturgies are celebrated. And so beginning on Palm Sunday, we celebrate some of the most ancient liturgies that we possess. We have our old friend, Etheria. She's usually spelled Egeria, but most of the time, I think in the original, it was Etheria. And she was a pious woman, it says in the diary, from either Gaul or Spain. And in the fourth century, she took, uh, went on a pilgrimage from where she lived to Jerusalem. And at Jerusalem, she observed what they did there during Holy Week, and she wrote it down. She kept a diary, and she also wrote letters to other pious women in Gaul or Spain. It leads us to believe that she may have been a religious, a nun, because she often referred to them as her sisters. In any case, in Christianity, we have often referred to uh, our brothers and sisters who not necessarily were members of religious communities, but I think those who are in religious communities and who usually do this kind of scholarship like to believe that other people who did this kind of stuff were in religious communities. But she very well may have been. I have her diary. It's called Egeria's Travels by John Wilkinson, and it's very interesting to read what it is that they do. And one of the things she mentioned was this palm procession that we do, and the reading of this very long gospel called the Passion Gospel. And in the Episcopal Church, we read them on a three-year cycle. So we read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, depending on whether it's year A, year B, or year C. And then we always read this, the Passion Gospel on Good Friday from John's Gospel. So in this week, you hear a lot of passion stuff. I think that in these great liturgies, preaching is often superfluous. But the interesting thing is that in the directions in the Book of Common Prayer, the fancy term for those are called rubrics, they don't allow you to sort of get out of it. They, they, they indicate that a sermon must be preached. So you'll have to bear with me if I have this sort of uh, pause with regard to its utility. So there are two things I want to do. The first is I want to say some things to you about the version of the Passion that we read from Mark's Gospel and something about Mark and his approach to uh, the, the mighty works of Jesus Christ, and then to preach against a trend 
that I will have more to say about on Good Friday, but I see is come becoming more and more voguish in certain circles, even with some of my dear colleagues. And that is that on this day, we're just not going to read to you the Passion Gospel because it's too depressing. It talks about things that are just violent and awful. And we don't need to do it. It's marching instead from one upbeat moment to another. Now, I don't know about how your life has gone over time, but we believe that Jesus Christ is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, and his suffering and death and rising again is for Christian people definitive. He becomes the unique focus of the divine presence. And to avoid speaking of this is just simply no good. So, kindly old Father Brewer will not shirk his responsibility, as reluctant as he sometimes feels about all of this. But we are not going to lose the ancient tradition of the church in a fever swamp of political correctness as long as I'm here. It will not be done. Gee, it sounds like he's riding a hobby horse here. <laughs> Sometime in a forum or something, we'll do a little bit more justice to why all this has come up. But the fact is that uh, I'm, uh, like my grandfather said one day when he came into the office and he was at the Rotary Club in San Francisco and he was talking to one of his friends in the Rotary Club who said, Oh, God, Ansel, I had to go to this church service somewhere on Sunday. It was some Baptist or something. And I, he said, Well, what did he preach about? He said, Well, he preached about sin. And, I, and he said, Well, what did he say? He was against it. <laughs> so I'm against it. So let me say something to you about the passion narratives generally and about Mark's gospel and what he's trying to do. I hope not too uh, like this, but we'll say some things. Mark is the, is the earliest gospel in the New Testament. And Mark's gospel also in some ways is the briefest. But at least the people that taught me, and I think people who still write about this, I try to keep up, would suggest to you that the core of Mark's gospel is the passion narrative that we read to you. And that all of the other material in the gospel that precedes it is added on later from the oral tradition, from other written sources, and so on. And we have, as I'll read you what Reginald Fuller says, the great biblical scholar of the 20th century in our tradition as Anglicans. The passion narratives are the only parts of the gospel material that existed from the first in the form of continuous narratives. Each passion has its particular timber, T-I-M-B-R-E, and theological emphasis. Mark's passion narrative has a twofold purpose. Actually, when you read it, you'll, you'll come in the richness of the biblical text to some more purposes. But the two main ones would be maybe this. 
How in the world did a righteous man, a good teacher, somebody who was believed by many even in his own lifetime to be someone that if God were walking around on the earth, he would be like Jesus? How could somebody like this get crucified? And so Mark is at pains in his gospel to, to engage into, in what is called apologetics. He's saying he got crucified because this is the fulfillment of what we understand about wandering away from the covenant. And all you need to do to check this is to read our own sacred literature in the psalm, Psalm 22, to read the great prophets of Israel, particularly Isaiah, who we read earlier, and we'll read through this week and in what are known as the suffering servant songs of the book of the prophet Isaiah. And early Christian people and early followers of Jesus heard and read these words and said, my heavens, if we'd have realized this, we see now put in the form of Jesus Christ all that we have talked about in the yearnings of Israel. So he's making a point about what has happened here and God's purposes uh, for humanity. And the second piece that he wishes to have accompany this is a, I hesitate to use this, but it's a spiritual purpose. It's a purpose of saying to us, you know what, what are we to make out of uh, vicarious suffering? What are we to make out of, our, out of our own suffering? How do we understand the adversity that we went through? How do we understand our own culpability in allowing things to happen in the world that we should have stood against? And you heard in the Passion account of more than one case of the, of the very dedicated followers of Jesus rejecting him by not rising to the occasion in the midst of his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. Even the women at the end, which is very nice to read in this version of the, of the Passion Gospel, because everybody gets included in the Revised Common Lectionary in a way they had not been before, even they don't do what they were tasked to do, which was to go tell everybody what had gone on initially. And so how do we deal with that disappointment and rejection? And how do we deal with, with that in our own life if we know the positive outcome of the story and see that somehow in this there is redemption and new life? And what is it that you're going to, what sense are you going to make out of your suffering? You know, one of the most pernicious things that occurred in American, contemporary American life in the last five or six years was the issuing of that movie by Mel Gibson called The Passion of the Christ. It was an absolute disgrace. And the reason it was a disgrace was not because it avoided the thing that I have just preached against, which is there's a certain amount of violence in all of this. There's a certain amount of vicarious suffering. There's a certain amount of uh, incomprehensible cruelty. Mel Gibson led people who don't know this to believe that what he was describing is biblical. And what it was, was a description, the horrific things that happened to the Jesus in the movie, that are the result of the mystic visions of a Austrian nun 
who lived in the latter part of the 18th and the early part of the 19th century, Anne Catherine Emmerich. And she wrote a lot of stuff about it. And all of her visions and everything have been published. And amongst a certain constituency who were fond of hair-raising piety, she's a big hit. And especially to traditionalist Roman Catholics like Mel Gibson and his father. When that kind of piety about the death of Christ and the centrality of the cross has not been part of the ancient understanding of why this is important to us. You know, the cross of Christ is the central symbol of Christianity in many ways. And it is there not because we focus on the horror of the death of the Savior, but on the stability of the cross is a sign that God stands with each one of us, each one of you, in the midst of the warp and woof of your life, in the midst of all of the triumphs, in the midst of all of the insight, in the midst of all the suffering and adversity that you have gone through and are going through as an absolute stability. And also at the same time, maybe the arms of the cross are symbolic of this, a dynamic force that is always leading us to a deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes for us. What does it mean? Now, in the issue of the, of the suffering of Christ, I want to read to you from Luke Timothy Johnson, another biblical scholar, who has written something about the cross that I want to mention. Just as the cross confounded ancient Jews and Greeks by contradicting their conventional wisdom about God, so does it remain an obstinate challenge to every age that seeks to identify God's rule with human comfort. So does it remain an obstinate challenge to every age that seeks to identify God's rule with human comfort. I talk to you a lot about Edwin Friedman and in his book, Leader... Uh, a failure of nerve, leadership in the age of the quick fix. He says the primary default position of all people these days and one of the great challenges to anyone in leadership is that we seek first symptom relief. And that in the hard work each of us need to do to attain spiritual emotional and mental maturity, we must be willing to go through the hard work to make it happen. And also to know that it can't happen overnight most of the time. Now this is very easy for a preacher to say to you. I mentioned a few weeks ago when I'm real sick or I'm in a lot of pain, I am willing to go to the doctor and say, I will take all the money I have out of the bank and give it to you and you take my pain away from me now. Right? So this is very easy to say and hard to do. And yet if we all come clean with ourselves and if there is any better time in the Christian year to do it, it's Holy Week, most of the time 
the great lessons that we have learned, the processes of maturity that we sense have happened to us as we look back, have all been done because we've stepped up and we've exercised some kind of responsibility and taken responsibility for our own emotional being and destiny. And the biblical account of the crucifixion of the Savior and all of the stuff that we read in the language of the ancient Near East is all about how that happens. And you and I can learn some things about what that might mean as we move forward. This week, as you move through Holy Week, remember something else. And that is that it is part of the church's teaching that what Jesus Christ is by nature, we become through adoption and grace. And so the redemptive power of his suffering is available to you on a daily basis. And the cross of Christ is the guarantee that God will never leave you. God is always there with you as a silent partner in love as you proceed to understand God's purposes for you. That's the gift we receive on Palm Sunday, which helps us get through this week. Amen.